Hello, and welcome to Sewer Signals, a podcast on utility experiences with wastewater surveillance. I'm Anna Marotra, Director of the Wastewater Surveillance Program at the Water Environment Federation. And I'm very happy to be talking with both Philip Bowman and Franz Fuchs from Cody and Cheyenne, Wyoming, respectively. Good afternoon, Philip and Franz. It's great to be with you both. How are you doing? Doing great, Anna. Yeah, excellent. Thanks for having us here. Yeah, it's great to have you both. Philip is the Public Works Director for the City of Cody, and Franz is the Chief Data Analyst for the Wyoming Department of Health. So they bring both the local and sort of the state level perspective to our wastewater surveillance discussion today. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Wyoming's wastewater surveillance program generally, but we'll largely be focused on the city of Cody, which is Phillips home turf. So let me tell you a little bit about the city of Cody. So the wastewater division of the city of Cody's public works department provides wastewater collection and treatment services to 10,000 full-time residents with wastewater flows that nearly double in the summer months with visitors and tourism activities. Their infrastructure includes over 80 miles of sanitary sewer with four lift stations and an aerated lagoon and rapid filtration pond treatment process that is permitted at 1 million gallons per day. Uh, the treatment facility is in the final stages of a multi-year upgrade project that includes influent headworks and screening, UV disinfection, and a continuous flow sequencing batch reactor treatment process that is expected to go through final commissioning later in the summer of 2022. So Philip, some big changes are in store for your treatment process, it sounds like. Yes, and it's been a long time coming. We, we originally bid our final phase of the project in 2019 and started work in 2020. So throughout the course of the pandemic, we've had material supply challenges and, and other COVID-related challenges that have delayed our project by a full year or more. So we're really excited to be seeing the, in the light at the end of the tunnel of that project. Oh, that's that's awesome. I can't imagine going through the construction process during COVID. My goodness. I'm glad it's going to be wrapping up. And you'll have a shiny new treatment process at the end. All right, let's let's talk about wastewater surveillance. Philip, how did you get involved in the state of Wyoming's wastewater surveillance program? So the city of Cody was originally approached by our Park County health official locally, and that is Dr. Aaron Billen. He serves in that role for Park County government. And he and I had a little bit of a personal relationship because uh, he participates in the Park County Search and Rescue, and so does my wife, previously participated. But having that kind of small town connection, Dr. Billen had heard about uh, wastewater sampling and wastewater surveillance early in the pandemic, and he approached me in early 2020 and asked if that was something that, that we could assist with. And so from an operator perspective, I, I told them, you know, we could certainly be a part of that for the sampling and the collection of samples, but I really wasn't equipped to do that type of testing or, or laboratory analysis. He informed me about BioBot analytics, mm -hmm. and so they were the, the first company we used for our testing and lab analytics, and uh, we actually collected our first sample here in Cody in late April of 2020 and sent that to BioBot 
that first sample we did by hand uh, and built a 24-hour uh, composite that one of our crew members came in and sampled every two hours on a 24-hour basis. So that was our first composite sample based on our crew member being willing to do that. And the second sample we did in later in May of 2020, we actually had a compact composite sampler that built more of a true 24-hour composite based on one-hour sampling intervals. And then um, we used BioBot for a third sample in, in June of 2020. And then starting in July, we worked with France on the state's program. Okay. So that you said that was in July, 2020. So yeah, I was going to ask you, Franz, what was going on at the state level, you know, around the time that Philip was getting up and running with the biobot testing for Cody. Um, it sounds like you were off and running with the state level program by July of 2020. Talk to us a little bit about how that started up. Sure. So, you know, I think actually we heard about Cody doing this with biobot in the, in the media. And um, so I think, you know, the idea kind of certainly came from Dr. Bill and, and Philip. So we'd heard about it. We thought we had some people at our state public health lab that were pretty interested in this idea. And we had, of course, at, at the time, CARES Act money, you know, was, was sort of raining from the sky. So there was sort of an opportunity here with, with the funding, the people that were interested in it and, um, and local partners. And we thought, hey, you know, Cody's paying for their testing. Uh, I bet we could probably do it you know, make it free for them and or pay them to do the sampling. And so make it worth a while to really try to build like a statewide surveillance effort. And so that was kind of the genesis of the idea. It took a while to get the sort of contractual arrangements up. We sort of, we basically had to contract with every single city and town and site that was doing this to have that, that uh, relationship, you know, with the state. It also, you know, took time to, we did a, like, for example, a, a batch order of uh, composite samplers. And which we um, ended up either reimbursing cities and towns for what they had purchased, or we just gave them those those samplers. The real goal of the state was to make it as easy as possible for cities and towns to participate in the program. So all the contracts, everything was designed to that end. Um, but as I said, kind of initially, the idea started with Cody. Uh, I think Jackson was pretty close behind. Philip, do you remember if they were doing something with Biobot too? But I, I know there was some interest in, in Jackson as well. Yeah, my understanding was that Jackson got started a little bit before us, and they were using BioBot for their uh, laboratory analysis. But uh, yeah, it seemed like we all kind of got started in that general time frame of of spring of 2020. Cody and Jackson both, uh, I think, had a an interest level due to the unknown factors of large visitor numbers. And what might happen with visitors still coming into our communities? Right. So yeah, we, we ended up um, kicking off our first sample was was with Cody um, on uh, July sixth, twenty twenty. Okay. Okay. So you were leading the pack, Philip. So how ultimately how many communities participated in this statewide program? So we had a mix of um, communities and uh, other sites. You know, we, for example, did it at our state-operated institutions. We had some um, facility-level wastewater sampling there. Uh, ultimately, I think we had a peak of around 37 sites okay. that we ended up working with. And then, Philip, you talked about how you started out with the manual composite samples, but ultimately you did get an auto sampler. And then starting July 6, 2020, you're part of the state program. For that program, where were you sampling exactly? At the Influent upstream in the collection system. Talk to me a little bit about the specifics of the sampling for Cody. Sure. So as part of our multi-year wastewater 
fire to treatment facility project, uh, one of the first things we did was build an improved headworks and screening process. So we did all our sampling in that, that headworks building and we actually uh, modified our sampling location. The first few weeks we were doing it above our screen. Uh, in the last weeks, we ultimately moved that behind the screen and found that to be a little more friendly for our composite sampler. To, yeah, I would to imagine so. The wastewater <laughs> after the screening process. But yeah, we only sampled at our Influent uh, Headworks location. We did not do any collection system sampling. And, and I think that's pretty representative for a community of our size. Uh, again, about 10,000 full-time residents, certainly some additional flow generation through the summer months uh, mm -hmm. when we have um, peak tourism activities and the maximum amount of visitors to our hotels and campsites. And we did purchase, as, as Franz mentioned, we uh, purchased a Teledyne ISCO composite sampler uh, through through the program that the state built, they were able to reimburse us a portion of that funding. And, and we actually dedicated some of our own funding to that in order to have some added capabilities for flow monitoring and flow measurement uh, as well for future use on that sampler and flow monitor. Yeah, that's great. For Cody, Philip, who is actually managing the auto sampler and pouring off the samples for the SARS-CoV-2 analysis and, and shipping them? And what did that, that whole logistics look like? So we had our wastewater operators uh, perform that function and they, they troubleshot that location and got the sampler set up in our headworks building. And then, yeah, we, we eventually developed uh, two times per week sampling uh, with France and in the state system. Uh, we were collecting on Tuesdays and Thursdays uh, through the state system. They provided all of the shipping materials and sampling vials. And so our crew would go out, our operators would go out on get the, the composite sampler running on Monday morning, uh, do a full 24-hour composite, and then collect and package that sample on Tuesday and get it into an overnight express delivery to ship from Cody down to the lab, I believe in Laramie. And so that would occur on Tuesday and then the lab would have it by Wednesday morning. And then the same thing for our um, Thursday sample, we'd ship that on Friday and the lab would receive it on Saturday. And so our, our crew members took on that responsibility. They really learned the operation of that that composite sampler and and I thought that was uh, really the best and most appropriate place for us to be performing that was with our wastewater operators and crew members. Makes sense. Just out of curiosity, and then I have a question for you, Franz, but out of curiosity, Philip, what, what else are you analyzing in your influent composite sample now? We'll, we'll talk about how the, the wastewater surveillance program is not ongoing at the present moment, but I suspect you're still taking samples at your influent. I'd be curious to hear what you're analyzing in those samples. Yeah. So a big part of our wastewater treatment facility upgrades are includes moving to a continuous flow sequencing batch reactor treatment process. And in the initial stages of that design, close to five years ago, we had taken a lot of samples from our influent 
for BOD and TSS concentrations. And so what we've actually seen over the last couple of years is significant increases in, in the concentrations of both of those waste components. Uh, we've seen BOD averages grow from about 300 milligrams per liter. Uh, we've had some recent sampling that shows grab sampling for our monthly reporting at over 400 milligrams wow. per liter. So, so one thing that we have utilized that continuous flow sample for is to start to develop some 24-hour composite samples for BOD analysis. And that's going to be very critical for us when we start that new SBR process and, and really dialing in that SBR uh, cycle times on, on uh, new operations. So we, we have been using that data for some other purposes in, in our wastewater operations and analyzing BOD and TSS from a composite sample, 24-hour composite sample, instead of just from our permit-required grab samples during the course of the month. Gotcha. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, so um, Franz, Philip mentioned that the Department of Health really managed sort of the, the sample bottles and the shipping and the analysis. Was the, the testing, the actual testing for SARS-CoV-2, was that taking place in a Department of Health lab or an academic partner? How was that happening? Yeah, so we, um, our public health lab did uh, most of the testing. And so they would, you know, those are all state staff. We did hire a bunch of temporary employees during COVID to sort of help manage the the wastewater accessioning and everything else. Uh, and they also did all the things like boxing up all those sampling kits in bulk and sending them out, you know, on a regular schedule. We did end up uh, contracting with the University of Wyoming to kind of help facilitate additional sites. And so they did handle some of the other extra volume, which was nice. Uh, but yeah, it was uh, internal uh, to the state. You're analyzing all these, these samples, you're getting data. What are you doing with the data? I know that you had a, a public facing dashboard. Was there, you know, was that sort of the primary repository of the data? What was the health department doing with the data? How are they using the data, if at all, to sort of yeah. inform, yeah, public health actions? Yeah, talk good, to me good about question. that. A lot of questions there. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So yeah, there, <laughs> You there can take them one at a time. <laughs> sure. So I'll, I'll talk about this sort of the processing piece. We, we basically used, and it's kind of sounds like amateur hour, but we use Google Sheets to track today as a log. So it's like a hey, single source of it truth. It works. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot, everyone, a lot of people could access it and we could have collaborative efforts with the different two labs. And it was the, you know, and it's available on the, on the dashboard today. We wanted to be as transparent as possible. But it's a really interesting question because there's a lot of, you know, I'm kind of a, a stats nerd. And so like, for me, it was a very interesting question of how do you, you know, we have a lot of, a lot of data. It's, it's very, it's very noisy. There's noise both within sites across samples, and there's also sort of information that potentially could be shared, uh, obviously over time, right? Because this is coming from the same site. You also have potential geographic, you know, sites that may be close together, and there also may be shared trends, you know, across the state. And you know, the data itself is interesting because it's coming in this. You know, what we're measuring is is from this PCR, the, the polymerase chain reaction process. You sort of these cycle thresholds is kind of the raw data that's coming out of the the qPCR process, and that data is is censored, right? So at you know, when you when you have a negative COVID test, uh, just like uh, a clinical sample, you know, we, we, we peg out at our maximum number of cycles, which would be 40 in this case. But a reading of 40 doesn't mean there wasn't COVID in the sample. It just means that it was below the limit of detection for the instrument. So there's an interesting statistical problem of trying to incorporate that censoring into the process. So when you're building this model that takes into account, you know, trying to share information across sites and within samples and adjust for the noise, try to convert the serial dilution curve of the, the CT counts into the, the concentration of the sample, and then working backwards to try to figure out, you know, 
how much water passed through that wastewater facility that day, you know, so try to adjust for that, try to adjust for the population, which may be seasonal. So there's a lot of like data processing that happens in the model and it happened all in one big Bayesian model, which was pretty cool. So that was a really fun project for me. It took me, you know, a few months to try to figure, piece everything together and figure it out. But at the end of the day, we're kind of able to extract you know, the best we the best we could do was kind of getting this like log concentration per person, like sort of an average viral load per person, because we really didn't know, you know, at that point, what does that mean in terms of prevalence or anything else? It's kind of hard to make those leaps. So that's ended up the signal that kind of we, we published on the dashboard along with the, the raw data and the, and, the, and the sort of scatter plots of the raw data. Now, how it was used is, of course, a whole separate question. And and that, you know, just keep in mind that that Wyoming is a very um, libertarian state. It, uh, the health department, we have, I think, a pretty light hand, uh, relatively speaking, as far as pandemic public health measures. It did get very bad in, in uh, the winter of uh, 2021, and there were some measures that were taken, like a mask mandate and such. But generally speaking, the purpose of the dashboard was for situational awareness for our state health officer, for the governor, and then for local public health officers like Dr. Bill and, and Cody. So that was the primary audience was sort of those those decision makers to kind of take look at the trend. You know, is it going up? Is it going down? You know, can we maybe foresee some potential you know, wave of hospitalizations coming. That I think was the main utility of the the wastewater data, and sort of being an independent source, right? It's not coming from clinical case counts. It's not coming from hospitalizations. It's sort of a, a third, you know, objective random sample that's coming from that community. Right. We talk about that a lot. That it's a relatively unbiased sample. Thank you. No, you did a great job addressing all those questions. Um, and you talked about the target audience or the decision makers, right? And you talked about Dr. Billen at Park County Health Department. Did you have a lot of interaction with other county level health departments? Yeah, it just varies by county. So I think uh, in Jackson, Teton County, Dr. Riddle over there was definitely involved. Um, Sweetwater County and, and Laramie County, or sorry, uh, Albany County, where the city of Laramie is. Those were also um, health officers that were more involved. The rest, it was mostly just either city officials or or the wastewater operators. We didn't really track, do any analytics on the on the dashboard to see who was visiting it. So I, I'm afraid I don't I really have any data there. But you know, I would say as far as the people that we knew were watching it, it was certainly either state level officials or or sort of county health officers for the most part. Okay, Philip, did you get any sense that the the residents of Cody sort of were aware of this program and were tracking the data at all? I think there was. Some awareness. I, I don't know that it was a real high level awareness. Um, I did frequently share just brief updates with uh, city council members in, in discussions, and Dr. Billen and I would occasionally speak. Just he would kind of check in to see if we were continuing our sampling and if we had any changes in sampling frequency. I think the biggest thing that I would probably say occurred in Cody was. Uh, just keeping our city council uh, members aware of what was going on. And and I think there was a genuine interest on their part to see if we really could determine if there was upticks caused by visitor levels. I think that was one of the main concerns for our community was, you know, we're, we, we were very late in, in our case numbers, like the first several months uh, or six months of the pandemic, we were very, very low numbers. But then once it hit, we we did get kind of a, a similar pattern. It just was delayed by say six months. And so I think there was a definite interest of whether that was, you know, just 
kind of being geographically isolated or was that a result of uh, perhaps some visitor visitor levels increasing and, and folks bringing it into our community for the first time. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So let's talk about funding. And you already spoke to this a little bit, uh, Franz, about um, COVID money uh, used internally by the state. Those monies were available through the end of December, 2021. And, and that's why the, this surveillance program is not um, ongoing at this time. What are what are your thoughts, or are there any plans for you know restarting wastewater surveillance in Wyoming? Perhaps applying for the ELC funding to support a wastewater surveillance program. Tell me a little bit about what you know about that. Sure. Yeah, and I guess you know the CARES Act was expiring. You know the funding we had to be had to be expended, but ARPA was 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 available. Um, there were other funds. We made the decision to discontinue the program mainly because you know they are federal dollars is not really monopoly money. Uh, and it was really kind of a juice first to squeeze kind of argument, especially on our state, on our staff at the uh, the public health lab. Um, we anticipated, for example, with the vaccine mandates that there'd be a, a surge of employer testing. And so we'd have to have a huge, you know, psych, you know, emphasis on individual uh, clinical testing at the state lab. And so it really was more of a uh, cost benefit analysis, you know, um, argument from our perspective. Um, we, we saw that, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's nice to kind of be able to see these trends, but you know, when there are vaccines available, when there's very limits, there's limits to what the state can really do as far as large scale, heavy handed kind of public health approaches. You know, what is knowing whether it's going up or going down? How does that inform your decision? Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that's kind of the tricky. That's the benefit. And, and of course, there were costs. So it was really, you know, we, we made that decision internally. Uh, the funding itself is, was not, you know, the, the primary issue. We probably could have continued it if, if we had determined that it was, you know, in our interests or the, the, the benefits outweigh the costs. Uh, I know the, the lab is, I think they did apply for the ELC grant. I'm not sure what, what the word is on that or, or what's going to happen in the future. I think if we do a, a implement wastewater testing, uh, again, it will be probably more targeted, probably towards um, maybe maybe on a facility level, hospital level. I, I'm really not for sure on that, but I don't think it'll be as, as large or as wide scale as, as it was. Okay, makes sense. And what about for targets other than than COVID? The lab has certainly had interest in sort of expanding, you know, still looking at like drug resistant bacteria or other kind of things coming out of hospitals. Um, I think there were there, there's certainly a, a, a wide range of applications to this technology. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I feel like we're scratching the surface, but we do have a lot to learn for sure. So let's talk about program challenges. And Philip, you alluded to this a little bit, just in terms of not having, you know, auto sampler equipment to take a representative composite sample. Um, you know, from your end, from Cody's perspective, were there other um, sort of key program challenges that you'd want to, you know, alert other folks to who are interested in starting these sorts of programs? I I think the biggest thing that I've shared when Anna and I did a presentation together uh, at a APWA conference, um, one of the things that I like to emphasize is that, you know, when I as an operator, when my crew as an operator look at this issue, it, it really seems overwhelming, but I would say pretty openly, the act of sampling and the, the, the role that we play can be done fairly easily. And, and I think once we had the right equipment, once we had our uh, portable sampler and, and had figured out where that really worked in our system, you know, overcoming that initial challenge uh, really made the, the process very easy for us to participate in. I, I think the other thing that really uh, helped in that manner was, was how 
Franz spoke to building a system that was really user-friendly for all of our communities. The fact that they assembled those those sample kits and the, the shipping uh, materials and, and just got us, you know, bulk bulk numbers every month and, and made it really easy for us. I mean, that, that was, it, it just made it really easy for us. So, I mean, I, I think the advice I would give as, as we move forward is that, you know, the initial thoughts may be very ominous and, you know, how much time is this going to take? How much money is this going to cost? But with, with good partners like Franz in the state health department, uh, I felt that our, our, impacts were pretty minimal to our operation, you know, a couple couple hours per testing cycle or per sampling cycle. And, um, you know, the, the program that Franz developed with some compensation for us to help cover those costs and help uh, reimburse us for the cost of the sampler. I mean, that made it really beneficial for us to participate. Yeah, and and thanks for bringing up compensation per sample because that is a unique feature of the the Wyoming program. Um, Philip, do you want to go into a little bit more detail about about the compensation, the bonus, and how that worked? Yeah, I think I think when Franz and I started initially chatting, you know, he did ask a, a very valid question. You know, how much time and how much effort does this take on your crew's part? And so, you know, it's it it's not a day, but it's certainly not a you know 15 minute exercise either. So, so I think he was very aware that you know, especially here in Wyoming, with a number of smaller communities where, you know, we have we have the luxury of having three operators on our staff for our wastewater treatment plant. A lot of other communities, you know, when you're talking about a population of three or even five thousand, they may only have one operator on their staff. So. I think uh, Franz was very conscious of the fact that this could be a significant amount of time investment uh, for a limited staff availability. So he did build a compensation component into the program to help us and help other small communities offset some of that cost. And he also built in that reimbursement um, for the sampler or, or even providing a sampler. And then, uh, you know, for continuous participation, if we provided a minimum of one sample per week for a full year, there was a bonus incentive as well. So we, we saw that as a great opportunity uh, here in Cody because we are moving forward with a new treatment process. We wanted to update some of our lab equipment. So I, I pretty openly told the guys uh, on my crew that if, if you're willing to commit to this and you guys, you know, work between the three of you to keep that sampling uh, up and running, we'll use, we'll dedicate that, that bonus and that, that compensation that we get to making improvements in our own laboratory with some new equipment or better equipment. And we've already started that. We've got a new pH meter that's already in place. And we're looking at some upgrades to our BOD and TSS analysis equipment and possibly getting a, CBOD meter to uh, hasten that testing uh, time frame on our BOD and CBOD analysis. So, so we're really using that to upgrade our facilities. And, and I know it was, as you said, Anna, it was unique, but it was a great incentive that, that France was able to build into our program here in Wyoming. 
Yeah. And just because folks are going to be interested, we're talking about a compensation of, was it $300 per sample? And then the bonus you mentioned for a year's worth of sampling, at least one sample a week, that was $10,000. Okay. I'm getting nods, <laughs> confirmatory nods. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and we, we also, you know, the, the shipping was free. We also right. uh, contracted with the Wyoming Association of Rural Water Systems to do technical assistance, which I don't think Philip, you guys needed, but um, for a lot of the smaller cities and towns, and I think, you know, Philip speaking, I mean, Cody's like a, a large city, I guess. It's it's the kind of scale in Wyoming is a little different. You know, we were like, we had cities like Fort Laramie, uh, which is like, I don't know, a couple hundred people participating. Um, and there the mayor is the, you know, the guy who runs the lagoon, who also runs the, he's also the dog catcher and the police chief and everything else. So mm -hmm. it's just a matter of compensating for their time and taking their time seriously. And, uh, you know, we, I come certainly from a, a healthcare financing, you know, like we, we work with Medicaid a lot. So we're acutely aware of, of how, uh, paying for healthcare affects incentives. And, um, you know, if doctors and nurses are, are, are paid for taking samples of COVID, you know, I, I, I figure, you know, why not compensate the wastewater operators as well? Yeah, absolutely. Taking their time seriously. I really like that that concept because that's exactly what's needed. What about you, Franz? Any other challenges from sort of your perspective uh, related to getting this program up and running? Well, uh, one I think would be the from the data side. Um, I was worried in the beginning that the that we maybe our our limit of detection wasn't sensitive enough that the data would kind of be really super noisy. Uh, I was really pleasantly surprised with with how. Um, in some ways, like how sharp some of these curves came out. And um, I think to the credit, I think of a lot of the wastewater operators really taking, you know, being really, really careful with the composite sampling process and, you know, refrigerating the samples and making sure there's ice in the bucket and keeping this sort of chain across the, the cold chain, as it were. <laughs> um, you know, I think that led to a lot of good quality data. And so that was that was a very pleasant surprise. That so that's something I, I was worried about initially, but it turned out to be fine. I think the main the main challenge from our perspective from like interpreting this data is when new variants were coming out, we were seeing reports that, you know, the the viral load per person was very, very different. And we have no reference data to know, you know, it, with Delta or Omicron, like how much more viral load was being excreted per person, right? And so when you see the curve going up, like, does that mean there's more COVID or does it mean that there's this different variant that happens to be shedding more rapidly? So there's a lot of unknowns as far as going forward. So I think the signal as the, as the just things got really complex with the new variants and everything, it became harder and harder to interpret that signal as, as sort of ground truth, especially when you're comparing it to past peaks or past trends. Right. So I think that was probably the biggest challenge for us. Everything else worked out great. I mean, the, the contracting worked fine. The, the lab did a, a really, really good job. I think with the processing everything. They had some really talented staff there. You know, really that, you know, we had a couple of hiccups with FedEx and, and UPS occasionally um, with holidays and, and transport times. But otherwise, I, you know, I think everyone did a really, you know, really good job in this process. And we had very few operational issues. That's fantastic. Well, I had one more question for each of you unrelated to wastewater. So Philip, what would you recommend to visitors to Cody in terms of things to do places to go? So Cody is uh, the closest city or town to the east entrance of Yellowstone National Park. So we get a lot of traffic for national park visitors going up to Yellowstone or going to other state parks or outdoor activities. But Yellowstone National Park is obviously a big driver for the city of Cody in, a, in our tourism in the summer. And one thing that I really 
emphasize to my friends and family when they're visiting, uh, when they're going through the Grand Loop or other um, attractions in Yellowstone is the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone River. And I, I think that's just an amazing uh, geologic feature. It's It's got one of my favorite rivers, uh, the Yellowstone River and and uh, I'm I'm a river enthusiast, so I I just really love the Grand Canyon and and encourage people to always go and visit that. It, it's just an amazing, just an amazing feature of of the park, along with all the other things that are going on. That uh, secondly, beautiful. yeah, and secondly, one of the things that a lot of people don't know about Cody is we have an amazing museum here called the Buffalo Bill Center of the West. And it's really a combination of five museums. You can easily spend a full day, if not more, visiting all the different exhibits and just learning about Western culture, Plains Indians, uh, the background of Buffalo Bill Cody and his traveling shows in, in the early 1900s. And it's just an amazing museum, amazing facility for a community of our size. So. I always tell people if they get rained out in Yellowstone to spend the day down in the museum. And it, it a lot of times I, I try to encourage them to go, but I know that that Yellowstone is usually a bigger draw that people are visiting for. But uh, really love the museum and really encourage people to go and check it out. And then finally, obviously, if you come into Cody, you got to eat something. So there's a lot of Good restaurants, local restaurants, but our favorite is a little takeout place called Y Thai. Hmm. And that's Y, like the letters Wyoming, W Y Thai. So uh, we love Dar and her mom. They do a great job with, and it's just awesome that we have great Thai cuisine here in, in Cody. Uh, it's not something you'd expect to find, I, I would say, uh, coming to a smaller community and having great Thai food. So. A shout out to Dara and her mom and Y Tai. Awesome. Yeah, I would say that would that is unexpected, but wonderful. All right, same question for you, Franz, but out, anything outside of Cody, what would you recommend folks see in Wyoming? Yeah, Philip's not underselling Cody. I mean, it's a beautiful, <laughs> but if you're driving to Cody in Yellowstone, which many people do, there's a lot of good, really awesome places to stop in the state. I, I love, you know, a real big perk of my job is going to like legislative meetings and, and um, they are held at, you know, very random parts around the state. So it's, I've gotten to see most of it, which is, which is cool. Um, and, and I, there's a lot of, you know, I think lesser known tourist places or lesser known sites that are just, you know, possibly just as beautiful as, as the Cody area. Uh, I really like uh, the Lander area, which is in Fremont County. Uh, Saratoga is really beautiful in, in Carbon County. Also the Bighorns, Sheridan, Buffalo area, fantastic. So there's just a lot of really scenic, you know, a, t- a ton of nature, a ton of place to be outside. Um, that's that's why would people should come here. But you do, I mean, like Saratoga has some really, I mean, it's a tiny town, has like really excellent, excellent restaurants, um, to, you know, two or three fantastic restaurants, which is really just disproportionate for <laughs> a town of that size. And, and Cody has a lot, lot to offer too. So, uh, you know, neither, I don't think Philip or, or myself are employed by the Wyoming Office of Tourism, but I, I do think we are uh, both very happy to, <laughs> to live here yeah. and, uh, and, and, and get outside. Yeah. Well, you're being good ambassadors for your state. Um, it sounds like there's just so many beautiful places to visit. Um, and we'll share links to the, the restaurants and the locations that you mentioned in the episode notes. So people can plan their trip to Wyoming accordingly. 
But I just want to say thank you so much, Philip and Franz, for taking the time to talk with me today. I really appreciate you sharing your perspective and your expertise and your knowledge about wastewater surveillance and Wyoming in general. So thank you. Thank you. Appreciate the time. You're welcome, Anna. It's been great to meet and visit with you.